This episode of The Untold Stories of Open Source is supported by the Linux Foundation's 2022 Jobs Report. The rumors are true. 93% of hiring managers have trouble finding professional developers with sufficient open source experience. And 69% of hiring managers are more likely to hire certified open source developers than those with less experience. Get more insights by downloading the free 2022 Jobs Report at linuxfoundation.org slash jobs report. There's a poem by Roger Kipling that begins with, If you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. You've heard the beginning of the poem before, but there's a little gem buried a few stanzas in. Clyde Seeper said, can repeat it from memory. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Clyde is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Training and Certificate Project at the Linux Foundation. He carries the idea with him that failure is temporary. Knowing that can help you get through some pretty intense situations. On the flip side, knowing success is temporary gives you a chance to store away some of those good feelings, which can be used to temper the struggles as the cycle plays itself out. Life's a little bit like the stock market, right? Some days you're up, some days you're down. Some days you're up big, some days you're down big. You're usually moving forward and up if you can uh, stay focused. Yeah, and I say this to my team all the time, right? Which is, you know, just things are going to break against you sometimes. And that's okay, you know, like... Nobody's going to get taken out to the woodshed because things worked out different than what we thought. The important thing is we keep communicating, right? What do we learn? What do we do differently today than we, than we knew yesterday? Uh, how do you build on that going forward? From the Linux Foundation office in New York City, this is the untold stories of open source. Each week, we choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source project to uncover its untold stories. If you work with open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. Clyde Seepersad grew up in Trinidad, up the coast of Venezuela in northeastern South America. The population is barely a million people. Trinidad has a diverse population, kind of like New York City, where everybody's an import in some way, three or four generations removed. Living in such a diverse culture, Clyde's worldview took on a certain slant. You get steeped in this perspective of people are different, right? So we had Hindu neighbors, we had Muslim neighbors, my family converted to Presbyterianism about 50 years prior. It was the type of thing where you just accepted that people were different and you'd go to, you know, you go you know, to one neighbor's house when it was Diwali and the other neighbor's house when it was Eid and they'd come to your house when it was Christmas. And, you know, nothing to see here. With the background of growing up in a place like Trinidad with all its diversity, there was no perceived majority, whether ethnicity, race, or religion. Everybody was in the minority. It made it appear that diversity was the culture. 
Clyde came to realize that the type of diversity he was raised with wasn't true in other places after he left home and started his global travels. People in less diverse cultures define their identity as us versus them. It wasn't just a cultural thing. It even extended into the technical world. Yeah, you know, you get some of this us versus them between the sort of people who are very into uh, technologies and the details of it and the folks who sort of stay one click further removed on, on the more business side versus the casual user. But I think the perspective of we're all just people. We may be experiencing these technologies in different ways. That doesn't mean we're not using the same technology. We're, we're, when I flip over, flip on my phone and pull something down from the cloud, you know, there might be a really complex workflow sitting behind getting that data to me, but and I experience it as a simple action if I tap on the screen. Uh, you experience it as a developer as a really intense project of pulling all those microservices together. That has been a, a really informative perspective, being able to sort of pull back from particular point of view of I'm in this camp or I'm in that camp. Clyde doesn't see himself as a techie. He actually has a slide in his presentations that says, I am not a techie. And it has a giant red slash through the word techie. Looking at his background, I'd have to agree. In 1994, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in accounting from the University of West Indies in Barbados. As a Rhodes Scholar, he received his MBA from Syed Business School, University of Oxford, which is consistently ranked as one of the top business schools in the world. Then, in 1999, he completed his studies at the University of Oxford, receiving his Master's of Science degree in Economics for yeah, Development. Yeah, the, the, the journey has been one that's very evolutionary. But you always come back to your strengths. I, like so many young people, decided deliberately not to do what my parents did. So my, my mom's a uh, teacher and my dad was a teacher and, you know, I was in a fourth generation uh, in teaching. Uh, and my dad was a lawyer and uh, I decided, okay, I don't want to do those. I want to do something different. I'm going to go do accounting. In the summer of 1999, over the course of three weeks, Clyde moved countries, got married and started a new job at the Boston Consulting Group. Working with the consulting group gave him a chance to explore different types of businesses, a chance to look at different industries and determine what would sustain his interest. Through his work, he had to interact with various personalities and find ways to influence their decisions, even when they did not want to change. It reminded him of a quote from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. The hardest thing in the world is to convince someone of something when his livelihood depends on him not understanding it. When people are really heavily invested in their current worldview, getting them to open up and think about a different perspective is easily the hardest. My old mentor used to joke that, that uh, you know, some people are impervious to logic. Another one of her sayings was, the two greatest forces in the universe are compound interest and self-discovered logic. 
something began to crystallize for Clyde as his consulting career progressed. Consulting is less about trying to change a person's mind and more about trying to frame a dialogue where they change their own mind. They get exposed to just enough feedback, allowing them to arrive at a different conclusion and let go of their old patterns. Convincing people smacks of prevailing on on them with your logic. I think for people who really get stuck like that, finding a way to have themselves discover the logic of a different reality is the challenge. It, It will take you seven or eight or 10 iterations before you finally find a way to sort of unlock uh, the mindset and, and and get them thinking about a different paradigm. But ultimately, if they don't convince themselves, if, if there is not self-discovered logic, they won't get there. The problem is external logic isn't going to get people to change habits. In most cases, there is some kind of trigger event, some kind of emotional conflict where there is self-realization that makes the change happen internally. The purpose of a consultant in this scenario is to constantly supply input so the discovery is perceived as self-discovery, a paradigm shift where the transformation can take place internally. People have their own perspective. Being willing to invest a little more time in the beginning of a relationship for sharing stories and finding commonalities is critical. It's important to get to know clients as people and allow them to get to know you as a person. That lesson has served Clyde well. It's easy to fall into a, into a discussion about we're here to do X. Let's start mapping out step one, step two, step 10. But taking the time to establish a relationship and learn something about people, try to get a sense of what makes them tick. There'll be plenty of time to come back and work out the 10-point plan. The old saw is true that you never get a second chance to make that first impression. For Clyde, his own self-discovery and realization happened as he progressed through the early stages of his career. First with the Boston Consulting Group, moving on to Mifflin Harcourt Publishing, and then on to 360 Training. His passion for managing organizational details was stronger than his interest in consulting assignments. Organizational management was just more interesting than delivering analysis reports and advising people on what to do. At a professional level, one of the challenges when you are a consultant is almost by definition, you're dealing with clients who have substantially more experience in their particular industry than you do. And usually are 20 plus years senior to you in their career. Figuring out how to establish credibility and be able to productively engage with folks and get past the skepticism of you're too young and you couldn't possibly know everything. You know, it's the old joke about, you know, I have forgotten more about this industry than you'll ever know. I think a lot of that comes down to trust. I came to view my number one priority when we started working with a new client as how do I establish trust with this person? We'll be right back after the break. 
This episode of the Untold Stories of Open Source is supported by the Linux Foundation's Training and Certification Program, which offers more than 50 free courses. Check out courses related to system administration, engineering, cloud, DevOps, security, and more by going to training.linuxfoundation.org. Select resources, then free courses to browse and register for your free training. The Linux Foundation's Training and Certification Program is here to support your career growth. What does a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford with a Master's of Science degree in Developmental Economics have to do with creating next-generation educational content? Fast forward 10 years after his MBA, and Clyde was drawn back into education. He describes the transition into education as the genomes starting to express themselves. He realized that education had become a very important sector. This is a really important sector. It's looking very different today than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And the implications for us and for our kids on what does it mean to be up to speed and current and know the topics and tools that you need to do to be successful. That whole framework has changed pretty dramatically and we've you know we've moved away from big picture multi-year programs of study and context to a much more transactional view of where are we at right now what are the tools we're using right now particularly in technology and that creates a huge challenge for well how does anybody keep up with this just relentless flow of what's new that was the siren call of coming back to education. It's interesting to see how multiple degrees in economics and accounting play a role in his transition back to education. Clyde sees his background in finance as a framework for understanding the costs in dollars of how to build an educational process and how to think about pricing at a global level, how to have a global impact when it comes to producing an educational process at scale. The dilemma is, how do you create a process that can be used in different economies and different cultures? Developed economies have their own momentum and success builds on success. Underdeveloped economies need uh, a little bit different framework in order to, in some sense, get jump-started. I think that's true for us if we look at the sort of global talent pool, right? The, the level of affordability and accessibility in Southeast Asia is very different than if you're sitting in the Bay Area. Understanding the foundation of how economies different across, uh, across the world, how people's experience of what it is to consume products differs, and how to make the numbers balance is useful. What's really interesting is the balance you have to find between the economics of how you set these things up so that you can reach the audience you're trying to reach with the human side of the equation. How do you get people interested? How do you get them to stay committed to these journeys where they're building skills, which is you know, really what we do? That side of it is equally important, right? People are not uh, machines. Motivations are at play, helping people think about what does it mean to put myself through a course of study 
instead of having to just turn up at community college every Tuesday, Thursday, and have somebody structure the work for me. Being able to appreciate the business side of things, as well as the the human impact side of things, has really made a big difference to how I think about having this type of program and how do you have an impact with it. In 2006, it was decision time again. There was a multi-year plan that would put him on the road to become a partner with the Boston Consulting Group. That path was a five to seven year commitment. Thinking it through, he couldn't see himself continuing in a consulting role when his real interest was in the operational aspects of running a business. That's when Harcourt Publishing came on his radar. As I started talking with friends and colleagues about you know, different opportunities. When the education opportunity came up, I thought, ah, that's something I could get my teeth into. And at the time, it was, uh, the time just Harcourt had realized that they had underinvested in technology and that they were going to need to make a major push in how they use technology to deliver educational outcomes. I thought, okay, that is a really interesting challenge, right? You have this company that's been phenomenally successful for 100 years, publishing physical books, and now they're ready to to step back and say, it's and, not or. But we, we, we need to have an and. We need to have a strategy for how we figure out the digital component of this. Over the next three years, from 2006 to 2009, Clyde worked with Harcourt to develop their educational programs. Growing up in an educational environment with both parents as teachers, he had a first-hand understanding of how much education was changing. The old model had a good 100-year run. Structured curriculums, formal learning environments, long learning paths had all been the norm. The theories of learning for high school, community college, and degree programs were changing now on a yearly basis. For several generations in the United States, the idea of not finishing high school was unthinkable. Now you are seeing role models who barely finished high school, let alone got a college degree, defining what it was like to live in a digital world. The extent to which young people are now digital natives defines their worldviews and how to function in a digital society. For Clyde, this was a seismic shift. I, to this day, if anything's longer than maybe six pages, I have to print it out to really read it and, and kind of grok it. I asked my kids, I was like, you guys never use, we have a printer at the house, you, you guys never use it. And they just look at me like, what, what on earth would you use a printer for? Right. They are used to consuming their information digitally, which is a huge change in how you, not just how you consume the information, but how you process the information. It's why I can't read a 30-page doc on the computer because it's, you know, my brain's not wired to process the info that way. In the 1980s, the public educational system was focused on the process of getting the most people through the system as possible. The problem was, it was the process that was driving the system, the process of mass education. That process was missing a key element, relevance. What is the motivation to continue doing something when you can't find the relevance of doing it? It's still a problem today. 
my daughter is doing some advanced math that's a grade a level or two above. And for many years, she enjoyed it. And this year, she hit the wall and started grousing about it. And I'm thinking as a parent, well, why stop now? But you can't browbeat people into wanting to do this stuff. <laughs> you know, they, they have to find the relevance. I think one of the things we don't do well in general in the, in the education system is highlight the relevance of why it matters. I can empathize with, with this generation, right? Everything seems easy. Right? You turn on your smartphone and everything, all the information you need is on there. All the apps you need are on there. You know, and so when you ask yourself whether it's math and what do I care about trigonometry or whether it's language and, you know, I don't really need to know what clauses are because autocorrect will tell me. It's easy to see why it becomes a challenge for younger folks to understand the importance of that foundational level of education. The thing that hasn't changed in the educational process finding relevance in topics you have no interest in. The relevance comes when there is experience and the maturing that comes with understanding that things become relevant with that experience. The realization comes much later than the education itself. Clyde empathizes with his daughter because he had the same problem when it came to statistics. In my entire K-12 career, the one thing I remember distinctly thinking was pointless, was statistics. In reality, it is probably the only thing I ever learned in high school that I use routinely in the day-to-day. And it just I just didn't know at the time because nobody framed it for me as, this is about understanding what's likely to happen in a complex world where multiple outcomes are possible. And sometimes... Surprising things will happen and not just a long tail. And other times it'll come in at the mean of what you expected. There was no context there. There was just, hey, this is a formula and this is how this is supposed to work. And you really need to know it. Why? Well, because you need to know it. Acceptance of the authority of, trust me, you just need to know, is, uh, is not a thing. Because I say so has gotten less and less powerful as the decades have rolled on. Clyde started to see flickers of open source while working at Harcourt. The company was examining open source learning platforms, massive open online course platforms or MOOCs, such as Moodle or Merlu. In 2007, Harcourt was acquired by private equity firm Veritas Capital. The new company was up to their eyeballs in debt. The economist and Clyde took a look at the balance sheet and said, Oh, I know how this movie's going to end. With that in mind, he moved on to 360 Training. 360 Training was a private education company. They were using a full open-source LAMP stack, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, Perl, Python. Through the use of open-source, he saw the possibilities of collaboration with others in the industry, not just as a consumer, but as a contributor. 360 was focused on post-K-12 career-oriented education in smaller packages. At the time, I remember thinking, hmm, this is consistent with the trend I'm seeing on the K-12 side, which is smaller, more focused pieces of education. 
that led people to then take the next step and the next step and the next step on this iterative journey instead of I'm going to go off for six years, get a bachelor's and a master's, and then I'm going to come back and be an X for my career. He stayed with 360 Training for four years. And then, in 2013, he received a call from a headhunter. They said they had something he might be interested in, education in open source. He kind of shrugged it off. And I remember being unconvinced and thinking, well, I'm not a techie, so... Could that really be a good fit? And I, I went to the meeting. It was supposed to be maybe a 20, 30-minute kind of catch-up over coffee here in Austin. And it turned into a two-and-a-half-hour discussion. Clyde went home that night and told his wife, that coffee meeting I told you about, it went really well. I think I'm going to leave my job. Just like that. No hesitation. Something had resonated during that discussion over coffee. He was on his way to the Linux Foundation. It was the aha of, wow, this set of technologies, this way of developing is going to become the new normal for everything. Because why would anybody ever go build, especially at the infrastructure layer, anything proprietary ever again? And even if you did build it, why would anybody use it and put themselves in sort of vendor lock-in jail? It was an idea whose time had come. He did have concerns that it would be susceptible to market failure in terms of marketing the training and educational piece. How were people going to find their way into this new type of training? There was no model. There's no history to relate back to. He had long talks with Jim Zemlin, the executive director of the Linux Foundation. Clyde wanted to know the big picture, the commitment to what it would take for the foundation to truly buy into what it would take to implement a global vision for education. Yeah, it was very much about what's the big picture play here? How are we going to be moving the needle? You know, my question to Jim was, are you willing to make what is going to be a multi-year investment to stand this stuff up? Right? You don't just show up one day with a fully baked educational offering. You need to figure out which parts of the portfolio you're going to focus on. You've got to put the infrastructure in place to actually build it. You've got to put the infrastructure in place to deliver it and to support it and to figure out how am I going to actually sell this stuff. That is a you know three-year journey. It was clear to me that Jim was all in, that this was going to be an important multi-year investment to stand up this capability. Clyde believed in the vision of the Linux Foundation and thought it might hold the key to the future of open source education. But still, how were people going to discover them? The concept of incremental learning of open source solutions was still relatively new. What are we going to do to allow people to discover them, find out what they can do, and then become at least baseline competent on them? In the proprietary world, the big software companies spent money to do that because it was part of their go-to-market strategy to go teach customers how to use software and have software assurance vouchers. And in the open source model, that piece does not exist because everybody who is using it is using it in a product. They're interested in training you about the product and how that particular technology fits into it, but they are much less interested in teaching you about the fundamentals of the technology itself. And I think that market failure is where in open source in particular, we play a really important role is making sure that people can get a vendor neutral appreciation of 
what is containerization? Why do I even care? Before they get to which Kubernetes service should I be using to, to implement the stuff? Things don't always go as planned when it comes to creating something new. Clyde gets it. He's philosophical about it. What keeps him focused is the big picture. The tag phrase we're knocking around these days is relentless optimism. Be relentlessly optimistic. Yeah, I get it. Some days suck and some things, you know, blow up. We have one right now where we're trying to implement a major new piece of functionality. It's already taken twice as long as we thought, and it's still not done. But the big picture is it's important functionality for us to diversify the product mix, and we're just going to keep at it. Like, it's nobody's fault. It's just taken longer. When it comes to providing value for the member community with the projects he's running, Clyde has a few things that help him keep focused on providing that value. First is to make sure the member companies understand that it's not about competition. It's about participation and collaboration. The LF isn't trying to reduce the size of the member's business. The goal is to do things that will ultimately increase the size of their business because we are a member organization. He wants to be clear with them about what the foundation is doing and why. The second priority is figuring out how to engage with the technical communities who will help create and use the products. There has to be engagement. Getting buy-in on the first one is always the hardest. There's no blueprint to show. There's no established process. That was some tough sledding, getting established, building some trust with the first few communities to be able to get going, to then be able to point to it and say, ah, see, you know, we did it here. There was lots of lessons learned about what not to do and why, you know, how do you position this correctly so that people can self-discover the logic of why investing some time to make sure there's good, strong entry-level education is important and something that needs to happen in addition to all the great work that happens on code development. The real challenge now for Clyde is how to shorten the gap between the educational process and the realization, the finding of relevance. And how do we shorten that gap? That's a lot of what we spend our time today thinking about. You know, we're about to release another jobs report that for the 10th year in a row says that not enough people are coming into these technology occupations. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why isn't this more attractive for young people who aren't already in that sphere of knowing a parent or a friend who's in technology or, or wanting to break out their Raspberry Pi and start programming it? I think a big part of the reason is two things. One, you have what a friend of mine used to call a Rapunzel's Tower Syndrome, which is you can see the window up there and Rapunzel looking up and you think, oh, I got to get there. But you can't find the door and you don't have a ladder. And so you have no idea, how do I get from here to there? People who are in the know come out and say, let down your hair because they understand, they know what the path is and you don't know what the path is. And so I think there's a piece of it, which is people can't see themselves in that career. And there's another piece of it, which is, I don't know that I have the skills and aptitude. And so a big part of what we spend have been spending a lot of time thinking about is how do we get people confident that they do have the skills and aptitude to be able to do this and then show them a path of how to get there? 
because it's both, right? They, they both have to believe that they are wired to be able to do this and that there's a path for them to get there. The 10th Annual Jobs Report is being released in June of 2022. While reviewing the report, Clyde noticed changes in how companies are perceiving the value of educating their workforce. He was pleasantly surprised at one of the findings. I'm pleasantly surprised that companies are finally getting over the idea that if I invest in my workforce, what's going to happen is they're going to go take that new skill set and find a job somewhere else. There was this long history of resistance to investing in educating your existing workers, which was always odd to me because you're willing to go out and pay three times as much for a new person who had the experience outside, but you're not willing to invest in your known person who's been a great contributor. And I think that dam has finally broken and companies have, a, have started to embrace an all of the above approach to talent management, that you got to grow some of your own, you got to hire some of your own, uh, you got to cross train some of your own, because plucking people off LinkedIn is not a sustainable strategy. Today's episode was brought to you by the OpenSSF Project and the Linux Foundation. Thank you to the team at the LF for making this show possible. The Untold Stories of Open Source is created with support from James McLeod, GitHub Tech Extraordinaire with the Finos Project, Chip Stewart, maestro of spreading the word, Melissa Schmidt, cool design and graphics, Noah Lehman, social media maven, and Jennifer Bly for her awesome voiceover talent. You have been listening to the Untold Stories of Open Source. If you like what you heard, follow the Linux Foundation podcast GitHub project where you can get the most recent episodes and put in a pull request to suggest future stories. I'm Mark Miller, host and executive producer. Until next time, thank you for your support and contributions to the open source community. Mm-hmm.